1: As a business owner, are you continually searching for less stress, more time freedom, and increased profits? Prosper for Business by Mackie might be the solution you've been looking for. Prosper for Business is both an executive coaching program and fractional CFO service designed to deliver exceptional results through increased education, visibility, and accountability. Prosper for Business graduate Jude Hemmen, CEO of Furlong Building Enterprises, said, The decision to work with Mackey was a life changer. They truly care about our success and give us the tools to do so. Working with the Mackey team also helped Julie Bach, owner of the Bach Group, see things in the business she hadn't seen before that led her to the business being more efficient, productive, and profitable. Does Prosper for Business sound like the right next step for your business? Visit MackeyAdvisors.com slash smallgiants. That's m-a-c-k-e-y-advisors.com slash smallgiants to learn more.
0: My guest today is Corey Rosen. Corey is the founder of the National Center for Employee Ownership, a nonprofit membership and research organization. NCEO is widely considered to be the authoritative source on broad based employee ownership plans. He founded the organization back in 1981 after working for five years as a staff member in the U.S. Senate, where he helped draft legislation on employee ownership plans. This episode is one in our occasional series of mailbag episodes, so we'll adjust the format to allow Corey to answer questions submitted in advance by our listeners. Welcome, Corey. Oh, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, I have so many questions to ask you. I remember, wow, 20, 25 years ago, thinking about employee ownership for my company and and ultimately deciding not to do that. And I'm happy to share that along the way here, but I wanna understand first, what sparked your interest many, many years ago in this idea of employee ownership in uh, privately held companies? Yeah, it was 45 years ago.
2: When I was working on Capitol Hill, and I was bored one day, didn't have a lot to do that day, and I was reading the congressional record, which only happens when you're really bored, and I saw this testimony at a hearing by a professor that I knew about, William White, and he was talking about employee ownership, Now, what's that? and I read more, and the more I read, the more interested I got. And at the, I, at the time, it was, to say the least, not a well-known idea, but I was really intrigued because it struck me that here was an idea that could address one major problem, which was that work for a lot of people was not very rewarding financially or emotionally or psychologically. And at the same time, it was something that could improve the performance of companies. And so you could make a pitch on this to Democrats as employee ownership is something that's more fair, more equitable, more people-centered. You could make a pitch to Republicans that this is good for business. And it turned out that employee ownership, which was created, the employee stock ownership plan was created in... 1974 legislatively, was supported by just about everybody in both parties. And that's been true ever since. So I thought, here's an idea that it seems to me could really make a difference in how the economy works and make it a more inclusive economy, while at the same time being something that's politically practical. And Even then, that was unusual. But today, of course, it's absolutely astonishing that you have an idea that can be so impactful in people's lives. And When you think about it, it sounds almost kind of radical to restructure the ownership of the economy, and yet is eminently politically practical because both Republicans and Democrats actually like it. In fact, Every time there's been a vote on employee ownership legislation, it's passed unanimously in the state and federal level. So how many ideas do we have out there like that right now?
0: And that's why I think this is so worth pursuing. Yeah, I don't think there's any ideas that have that track record. Yeah. Uh, So you said that the initial legislation came out in 1974, and maybe that's changed or been amended over time. Many times, yeah. Yeah. So what what are the basic structures of employee ownership? I mean some of us have heard of ESOPs and right. I know there's right. others today, but how has that changed over time?
2: Right. So if you go back to the 1950s, Lewis Kelso, who was a San Francisco investment banker and attorney, was saying, you know, I think over the next decades you're going to see wealth from income stagnate, that real wages are going to stagnate. And that was because of changes in capital investment and globalization. And he turned out to be right, albeit at the time and for decades after, economists thought he was just a crank. But of course, he turned out to be right. Real wages have been stagnant since the 70s. But returns to ownership of capital have gone up quite nicely, uh, more than 8% per year, since the mid-70s in real dollars. So Kelso said, we need to find a way that ordinary working people can become owners of capital too, and thus have this second source of income ultimately from their ownership. But precisely because their wages are so stagnant, they don't have the money or the risk tolerance to invest in capital ownership. So somehow we need to find a way that they become owners by virtue of their work. And he created this idea called the ESOP. Then it was called the Kelso Plan. And basically what it says is, you know, when somebody else wants to come buy a company like a private equity firm, they borrow money to buy the assets of the company, and then they pay for that loan out of the future profits that the business creates, Now, why couldn't employees do the same thing? Well, because nobody would loan them the money. So Mm -hmm. instead, let's create a legal structure where a company can borrow the money to purchase capital assets, including its own stock, maybe to buy out an owner. And it takes that money and it reloans it to a trust that it sets up for employees called an employee stock ownership plan trust. And the trust repays that out of the future profits of the company, just like you would with a private equity deal, except the employees become owners. And unlike the private equity deal, Kelso said, we can structure this so that both the principal and the interest are deductible, not just the interest. So the question was, well, is that really legal? And for years, you'd have to get IRS approval. In 1974, Congress, as part of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, said, yes, it's legal as long as you comply with these rules that make these plans inclusive of all employees in much the same way you would other retirement plans. So that's how ESOPs got started. Over the years, Congress kept adding more and more goodies. Um, I wrote the, the, the bill that I wrote when I was on Capitol Hill said that if you sell to an ESOP, you can defer capital gains taxes by reinvesting in stocks and bonds of U.S. operating companies. There were some additional tax incentives passed in ensuing years. Uh, and in 1997, Congress said if you're an S corporation, the profits attributable to you as an ESOP are not taxable, if you're a 100% ESOP-owned S owned company, you don't pay any taxes at all. So think of this. Money going into the plan is tax deductible. You can structure the plan so you get a tax deferral on the gain. You can convert to being an S corporation and not pay any taxes on your profits. That's a pretty sweet package of tax incentives. And as a result, today, there's about 6,600 ESOPs. They employ uh, roughly 14 million people. Of these, uh, about 6,000 are in closely held companies, and they employ about 3 million people. You know, public companies, are, they're much bigger, so they employ more people. But if you look at the largest ESOPs, for instance, there's over 100 100% ESOPs that, own over, that have over 1,300 employees each, so some very large companies as well as companies with 20, 30, 40 employees. That's not all there is in employee ownership. There's another couple thousand companies that provide restricted stock or stock options or synthetic equity like stock appreciation rights. The most are all of their employees, many of these are in technology or other knowledge-related businesses. But it, not only that, you know, Starbucks does that, for instance, and quite a few startups do. Uh, and then you can also provide ownership through what's called an employee ownership trust, which is not a creature of a tax law. It's a permanent trust you set up that's intended never to sell the company and the employees are the beneficiaries of the trust, and they get dividends from it. No special tax incentives for these plans, but they don't have the same kind of complicated rules or other requirements that ESOPs do. So those are the primary ways that we see broad-based employee ownership in the U.S. right now. So
0: some listeners like me could be easily overwhelmed by all of this Absolutely. No, no question there are lots of benefits financially tax-wise uh philosophically of course in terms of having employees participate in ownership even if it's retirement related but i remember many many years ago I was building the company without an intention to sell. I just wanted to build a great company. And at some point, I started to learn about these options. And I got to tell you, Corey, that I just became overwhelmed looking at ESOPs. And I just couldn't understand enough. It just was so complicated that it just became an option that I didn't seriously consider at the time. Since then, I've learned more about it, of course. Uh, I ended up selling my my primary business to a strategic and everything worked out well and in the long run, but what has changed to, if anything, to make the establishment of an ESOP simpler or more easy to understand, particularly with small privately held businesses?
2: Yeah, there are a lot of rules to be sure. ESOPs are governed by the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which is the same law that governs profit-sharing plans, pension, and 401k plans. So if you're familiar with those rules, 95% of the rules for who's in the ESOP and that sort of thing are the same. So that helps, I think. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that the infrastructure around ESOPs is pretty well developed now. There are lots of people who provide information on this you know, our organization, for instance, if you come to us, we will, we can get you information that walks you through, step by step, how this is done. We can hold your hand. Other people can hold your hand through the process. And I don't think the rules of ESOPs in terms of you know, which employees are eligible and when they get it, those are so similar to other retirement plans. That shouldn't be a consideration It has more to do, I think, with there are many different options about how you can finance an ESOP, about, you know, you can have seller notes, and there are different options with seller notes. And if you want to reinvest the money in stocks and bonds, there are some rules about what you can reinvest in. You have to have a valuation done by an independent outside appraiser, but you can hire Advisors who will do this for you, yeah. and you have to be involved, of course, to understand what's going on. But talking to M and A advisors, what they will always tell you, and I think accurately, is that selling your business to anybody's complicated. You're going to have sure. lawyers. You should have an appraiser done, an appraisal done, so you know what to ask for. You can have accountants if you sell to a privately held to another company. You're going to have contingencies you may not have with an ESOP. So the notion, and there's a table we have on our website that compares selling an ESOP to selling to someone else in terms of cost and complexity. And the bottom line is, obviously, there are exceptions, but it's generally less complicated and less expensive to sell to an ESOP, albeit both
0: ways are both complicated and expensive yeah you're certainly right about the other options being at least as complicated and i didn't know that at the time but i went through the whole private equity thing at some point and decided not to move forward and then had talked to people about other options and like i said ultimately went through a sale and had lots of issues along the way that had to be dealt with so i'm sure it's it's no different What do you think about this idea that there's, let's say, 6,600 ESOPs? Do you ever scratch your head and and wonder why more companies haven't jumped on the bandwagon? Daily.
2: One thing that's important to note about that number is that it doesn't include all the companies who sell to ESOP companies. And that's something people listening to this might think about too. As ESOP companies have matured, and made a lot of money, because what we know from the research is that other things being equal, ESOP companies perform better than other companies. So not only do you perform better, but you get all these tax benefits. So they perform better even when you net the tax benefits out, but then they've got the tax benefits too. So they're doing quite well often, and they accumulate a lot of cash. And there's a real wave of ESOP companies buying other companies going on. So, you know, that's a, that's an option and so it's growing faster than the base number of companies indicate because if a company sells to an ESOP it doesn't show up as a new ESOP. But I think the answer for why there aren't more ESOPs all of us who work in this field agree is pretty apparent and that is owners of companies who might sell to an ESOP either don't know it exists at all, or they go to their advisor, their accountant, an M&A broker, and they say, you know, what about this ESOP thing? And what they are likely to hear is it's complicated. It doesn't always work, which isn't, you know, in fact, ESOPs work better than other buyouts by far. But, you know, maybe they read a story about some company that didn't do well. Uh, or, No, you can get a better deal selling to someone else. And sometimes you can, but usually, not of tax benefits, you can't. But what they're really saying is, I don't know how to do it. Mm. And if you go, if you do an ESOP, you might use somebody else. Or worse, yeah, I kind of know what it is. Maybe I could learn how to do it. But if I sell your company to another company, I get a success fee. Right. For finding that. If I sell your company, if you come to me and you say, Paul, I want to do an ESOP. And can you help me do this? And you say, sure. And for finding the buyer, I'm going to charge you 2.5% of the transaction. And I'll say, well, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I already found the buyer. I just need to get the thing set up. I need a lawyer and I need an appraiser. I need somebody to help with figuring out how to, how to finance it. I don't need somebody to find me a buyer. Well, as business brokers have sometimes told me, gee, if I can't charge a success fee in that situation, then I don't want to tell them. Now, sometimes it's legitimate to pay a success fee even when you do an ESOP. If you are considering an ESOP versus other companies that could buy you or you're looking for non-bank financing like, you know, mezzanine debt. But if you're not doing either of those things, you know you want to sell to an ESOP and you can finance with seller debt and or bank loans. You don't need to pay a success fee. So there's a real built-in bias here and a lot of misunderstanding and fear about how ESOPs work that is not justified. So... That's the biggest hurdle, and it's, it's a huge hurdle.
0: Yeah, it, it, even so, these myths are perpetuated by those that are meant to advise us about our financial futures and these huge decisions that we're making, and primarily because the economics really are a disincentive for them. Right. Uh, yeah, really, really interesting. So as someone who's overseen and implemented and watched the, the good, bad, and the ugly of ESOPs and related organizations, are there reasons not to consider employee ownership? Yeah, absolutely. And so when you think about what
2: makes a good ESOP candidate, it's a successful, closely held company with one or more owners who want to sell, and they might want to sell the whole company, or they might want to sell just part of the company. ESOP can do either one. Which is, of course, a big advantage of an ESOP relative to selling your company. If, if, if you have, you know, multiple owners and one wants to sell, it may be difficult to buy that owner out. It's expensive, certainly after tax dollars. Uh, but if you if you have a situation where you have, you know, the owners want to sell some or all the company, the company is profitable because. What you're doing with an ESOP is using future pre-tax profits to buy out stock. Well, you have to have enough profit going forward to do that, plus you have to have enough profit to keep running your business. So if you have a business that's marginally profitable or losing money and you want to do an ESOP, it's, it's not going to work because you don't have the money to do it there are costs associated with this uh, substantial costs typically to set up an esop is depending on the size and complexity of the deal $150,000 and up and it can be you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in larger more complex deals compared to the cost of selling to another company when you consider the success fee the esop sales are comparable or cheaper But if you are a company with, say, 10, 15, 20 employees, even if you're profitable, those costs might not be justifiable. Mm -hmm. So typically, you should be about 15 to 20 employees at least, be profitable, have successor management in place, or be able to find it, because obviously you're not going to succeed without it. And all of those things make you a pretty good candidate. The companies that really succeed with employee ownership are ones that either have or create an ownership culture on top of it. And the simplest way to think about that is it's a company that where lots of employees generate lots of ideas about lots of things on an ongoing basis because the company's provided the information and structures to create that kind of involvement. You don't have to do that to make an ESOP a, a, a serious option for you, but if you do it, you'll be a lot more
0: successful than if you don't. I have a question about that. As you've done your research, uh, is an ESOP an answer to a poor culture That's that can create your culture or enhance your culture by doing something like this? Or is it best done by a company and an owner who already gets that?
2: Well, any company, when we think of ownership culture, we think of it with a few elements. One is the company communicates regularly about how the company is doing and how the employee ownership plan works. Second attribute is that the company is uses some variation on open book management or the great game of business where they provide not just sort of the high level, here's our income, here's you know the key things on our income statement and balance sheet, but they provide a lot of work level metrics. So their critical numbers about what makes their your particular operation within that company successful. And the third is they provide structured opportunities for employees to provide input, identify problems, and come up with solutions to work level problems. That's an ownership culture, and any company can do that. Mm -hmm. What the research has found though, and there's very extensive research on this now, what the research has found is that companies that share ownership broadly are much more successful in sustaining those kinds of cultures than companies that don't. So years ago, for instance, we did a study with the Great Game of Business folks where we looked at companies who were using open book management but not an ESOP and companies that combined the two. And we found that the performance of both companies was enhanced by using open book management what was really interesting was that we had a really hard time finding a large enough sample of open book company companies who were not ESOPs or other forms of employee ownership, either when they started or they started their plan and didn't convert to it, because what would happen is companies would set up these kinds of plans, run them for a few years, and then there'd be another, a new management or... People would just get tired of it or whatever, and they would stop. Whereas it persisted in employee ownership companies, and in fact, grew and strengthened in these companies. And the reason I think is pretty obvious that the employees in these companies thought, well, gee, we're owners. And so there's a reason to keep doing this. And their managers looked at them and said, they're owners. And so they deserve to be treated this way. And in the non-employee ownership companies, not so much. So it's a very uh, iterative process between ownership and culture. And you can have one or the other, but neither
0: one's going to work very well absent both. Yeah. I remember when I was considering it, one of the big questions I was asking myself was, is this going to impact the behavior of our team? our employees, particularly when, as a retirement plan, the ESOP, from a financial sense, is a benefit that they're going to not see for many, many years. So how would those companies that have done this, what would they say about whether it has enhanced or changed the behavior of their employees, or is that not really the point?
2: Oh, I think it's very much part of the point. We Fortunately, we have lots of stories, of course, about how it's enhanced performance. We also have lots of data, and data are simply collections of stories, right? Data are large numbers of stories put into numbers. So what do we know? We know that, for instance, in the food industry, which was really socked during the uh, pandemic with employee attraction and retention, ESOP-owned companies had 70% Higher retention and 40% lower turnover, uh, 40% more success in attracting employees than comparable companies without ESOPs did. Other studies have shown similar patterns that retention in ESOP companies is dramatically higher than comparable companies. We also know that ESOP companies, when you factor out how they were doing before they were ESOP relative to their industry, and look at how they're doing relative to industry post ESOP, grow about two and a half percent per year faster in sales, productivity, and profits than would have been expected. These companies, when they take out their acquisition loans, we did a big study during the 2009 to 2013 period, which included a pretty severe recession, and we found the default rate on the acquisition loans was two per thousand per year, two per thousand per year, so almost non-existent. So on pretty much any measure that you want to look at, the companies do better. The employees' retirement assets combining their 401k and their ESOP are about three times what the retirement assets of comparable employees who are in retirement plans, out, and sixty-seven uh, percent of that is what's in the ESOP. So it's true that from the employee's perspective, well, I'm not going to get this till sometime after I leave the company. I don't necessarily have to wait till you retire, sometime after I leave the company. But as those accounts start to build, and those numbers start to be tens of thousands, and often, most often, in fact, for employees has been there for uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and people see this, that's pretty Im- impressive to people to know that you've got this financial security. But at the outset, what we think really helps companies is if you sold to an ESOP, the story you want to tell to employees is the most important thing that happened as a result of this Is not right now what's going to happen to your retirement plan sometime in the future. It's that we didn't get sold to somebody else. And it is often sadly the case. When you got sold to somebody else, it didn't go well for the employees. Not always, but too often.
0: Yeah, lots of stories there, too. I wanna ask you really quickly not to go down the list of all the other alternatives for employee ownership but we've been hearing lately, uh, primarily due to Patagonia and some other bigger companies around this perpetual purpose trust. Can you describe what that is and and why that may be becoming popular?
2: Well, popular is too strong a term at this point, but we are seeing some interest in this notion of the employee ownership trust which is a kind of purpose trust. Patagonia's purpose trust is to give money to the environment. An employee ownership trust is a a purpose trust that says there's going to be a trust. There'll be a trustee. and Normally it's elected by the employees, but you don't have to do it that way. You can do it whatever way you want because there's no laws and rules around this. But this trust is intended to be permanent, the pro- the dividends that the, that the company generates from its shares, which could, and this could just be profit sharing, doesn't formally have to be dividends, will go to the employees each year as beneficiaries of the trust. And the trust will is intended never to be sold. Now, in reality, it's imp- pretty much impossible to do that uh, legally, but that's the intention, is that you're never going to sell it. And you can set up whatever rules you want in these trusts about which employees are eligible and how much they get in terms of you know, how much does this employee get relative to that employee. What we typically see in the EOTs that are here now is they have rules for who's in the plan and how much they get that are similar to rules for ESOPs. And the employees have some role in the governance of the trust. And I should add that in ESOPs, there is no such requirement. The governance of your company is going to be pretty much whatever you want it to be. And you can do that in EOT as well. But usually, these plans do provide employees with some degree of of governance role. So that's the big difference between these two. And because Mm -hmm. they don't have any... Any special tax benefits? They don't have the same number of rules or regulations, and so they're cheaper to set up. But you know, maybe it's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars to do an EOT, for instance.
0: Let me jump to our our mailbag because we had a, as you could imagine, lots of questions that came in from our listeners. Um, and let me throw a couple of these at you, uh, and this kind of is along those lines. It's do you suggest incremental moves like, let's say, profit sharing before you might be ready for ownership?
2: I don't know. I don't see why that's necessary. You don't need to sort of prepare your employees to be owners. It's it's a pretty cool thing to go to your employees and say, and we see videos of this, I have some news. The company's been sold. That's the bad news. Good news is you're now the owners and it doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't think you need a lot of preparation for that. You're going to need a lot of work afterwards to explain how this works and and that can be fun and companies often have a good time with the with events that they do around employee ownership during the year. But no, I don't think you need to prepare employees for it. You don't and a lot of companies don't even have much of a culture around employee involvement prior to this, you can do it later and it can
0: still work. You just have to do it. Yeah, I have a good friend who a number of years ago started an ESOP and his message to the team was the exact message you just described. And uh, we recently caught up and he was just talking about some potential acquisitions and that they had just a load of cash as a result of what they did years ago. And uh, looks back it just, that being the best decision and the story of when he stood in front of the employees in the cafeteria that day is just, um, you know, makes you want to cry. It's really yeah, something incredible. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So for someone considering employee ownership right now, what would you say are the two or three best ways for them to measure the impact as they go forward?
2: Well, if somebody, you know, an owner of a company is thinking about, should I do this? I think there are a lot of of things that you'll think about, you know, 10 years later, say, did I make the right decision? Did I feel good about what I did? And overwhelmingly, what we hear from people in that situation is that their biggest measure is legacy. The biggest thing they're asking themselves is, what's the story I want to tell about my company years from now? Is it that, well, I sold to another company and I got a lot of money and I hope they did well, but after that, it was you know not, not my concern anymore. Or is their story, and that's understandable, by the way. I'm not, I don't want to disparage people for doing that at all. You built the business. You deserve to make that decision. But what we hear from these owners is, I cared about the community. I cared about my people. And oftentimes, I wanted to stay involved in the business in some capacity or other. And if I did an ESOP, that legacy gets gets preserved. And if I want to stay involved, I can stay involved however I like normally. And that's becoming actually a much bigger factor in the motivations that we hear from people is that desire to stay involved. And then, of course, how did it do? You built this legacy and you hope that the employees would end up really benefiting from it? Did the company grow? Did employees end up with a bigger nest egg than they would have? How do people feel about working there? Do they feel like this is something to celebrate? And so if you see all those things, you look back and say, gee, I really accomplished something special here.
0: Mm. I love that, that the legacy and the story you tell many years later is the biggest benefit. I can see that. Um, so two more quick questions. One is that I, we got in, which is, what is the impact to society and capitalism as a whole? And are we, are we starting to feel that impact?
2: Well, there's still not nearly enough employee owners, but uh, for those who do, it, it certainly makes a difference. You know, we, I wrote a book with John Case, who may be a familiar name to some of your listeners, called Ownership Reinventing Companies' Capitalism and Who Owns What came out in September. We make the argument that ownership's really broken, but you have public companies whose time frame is increasingly tomorrow, not even next quarter. You have private equity and all the problems that have come up with private equity and the companies that buys and strips and changes the incentives. And ownership is concentrated more and more in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And meanwhile, 50% of the population can't put its hands on $1,000 in an emergency. And most employees don't have enough money to retire at anything close to the level of income that they had pre-retirement. So in ESOPs, the median amount of retirement assets, $170,000, But that includes people who are 27 and people who are 77. And if you look at what people get when they actually do leave the company and move on to retirement, it's typically hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is life-changing for people. And these companies are performing better. They lay people off at one-third to one-fifth the rate, depending on the measurement year of other companies. So it's more job security. It's a more involved job where you're treated with dignity more often. And it's a job that generates a kind of wealth security that unfortunately for most of the population isn't there. And unfortunately, even more, is creating a profound sense of unfairness in the economy, a distrust in society, and a feeling that the system's broken. And we are seeing the reverberations of that in, and it's not hyperbole to say it, threats to the future of democracy itself.
0: I can tell why, after decades, you're still so passionate about this topic, and and uh, even your own legacy by seeing this this grow, and uh, it's clearly having an impact on not just these companies, but the world overall. Really incredible. So finally, Corey, what would you say to the listener who's maybe hasn't even thought about selling yet, but as we know, we're all gonna, at some point, transfer ownership in our, our companies one way or the other, what would you say about the best place to start? Where, where do they look? How can your organization help them? Mm -hmm. How do, how do people start to, to research and just understand these options? The NCO is
2: a good place to start. Our website has a lot of free information. We have a lot of other resources for people because we don't do consulting. We don't set up plans. We're not here to try to sell anybody on doing one thing or another. The worst thing for us is for companies to do it where it doesn't make sense. So we we really make an effort to be objective and straightforward. So you know we nc the the website is nceo.org national center for employee ownership and you can read articles about the various forms of employee ownership and then there's all sorts of you know publications and conferences and webinars to dig deeper into this so that's useful the other thing that's really useful is to talk to other companies who've done it and if you don't know other companies who've done it then let us know and we will put you in touch with companies in your industry or companies uh, in your area. That's really a useful thing to do. Uh, That'll give you a much better sense of what their experience has been, what the costs are, what the challenges are, what the benefits are. So one of those two things I think is a great way to start. I wouldn't start going and asking your accountant No disrespect to your accountant, but they may not know what (laughs) this is. So you want to get an idea of this first and make a decision first and then get the advisors who have the expertise to do it.
0: Yeah, they can execute for you, but to to educate yourself um, is the first place to go. And I love the idea of just talking to peers because we're all going to listen first to people like us that are going through it or have been through it and see what their experience has been. Wonderful, I I just wanna reflect Corey on some of the things I learned just listening to you today and and your knowledge and experience that has contributed to this movement. Just looking back to how this all started in this this legislation in 1974, the fact that you and others were able to push this through because there were benefit to both parties politically, it was not just good for people and employees, it was good for business and business growth that it allows you to give ownership to employees not because they have to invest but by virtue of the work that they do which is just a a wonderful thing to be able to accomplish uh lots of different ways of doing employee ownership obviously esop and others it's certainly grown over the years you can tell by the growth of your own organization how much of an impact this is having you know 6,600 ESOPs to date, 14 million employees impacted and growing. And clearly, your commitment is to do the research to say what has been the impact. And so it's clear that these ESOP companies perform better and they have all the tax and other financial benefits that go along with it. And And it's important for people to consider what is important for me to know or what stage should I be at in my company to seriously consider this? And so like you said, privately held company, one or more owners that want to sell at some point need to be profitable to be able to support this trust and and this method going forward. It could be costly, it could be 150 grand more to go through this. And you probably want to have 15 or 20 or more employees. Also important to have a successful management team or succession plan in place. And lastly, just this ownership culture, which I think we're finding through organizations like Small Giants, Great Game, et cetera, that uh, we wanna build that ownership culture in our companies regardless of the financial side and what the structure is. Um, And the importance of things like open book management, transparency and involving our employees in the decisions that we're making and not doing it from the top down. Uh, And I love that employee-owned companies, the data has shown are better able to maintain that ownership culture long-term than those that don't have employee ownership. Uh, Higher retention, they grow faster. I mean, there's just not a reason not to look at this seriously if you meet all those other requirements at some point. And so I hope that those that listening are going to take the time to do some of this research, to go to your website, nceo.org, to read your book, uh, to talk to their peers, and ultimately to realize that we're all looking for legacy going forward. And if, if I'm able to look five, 10, 20 years back, if I'm able to talk to my friends, my family about the impact I made on the world, this is going to be a great story to tell. So, Corey, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. We really appreciate you being on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity. I've been an admirer of what the uh, small giants have done, and the whole idea of the small giants is inspiring. So thank you for the work you're doing.
0: Well, thank you, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at SmallGiantsBuzz. Until next time.